Would you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 13? We're going to look at verses 10 to 21 this morning as we continue our way through Luke's gospel. Thank you. I'd like to read this passage for us as we begin. Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue rulers said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. And again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. What a joy it is for us to be able to hear this teaching of Jesus. And to imagine what it was like for those who heard it for the very first time. And for us to think about what it means for our life today. Would you guide us by your Holy Spirit as we work our way through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this November is going to be a big month for our family. Not only is it a time of transition for me, leaving my role here as senior pastor and taking a position with the Evangelical Free Church, but our youngest son, uh, Ben, and his wife, Becca, are also expecting their first child, and that's a pretty exciting event. In fact, her due date is this coming Friday, so any day now we could get a call that uh, there's a little one on the way. And it's kind of fun because Ben is still in med school, and he is in this rural physician program where uh, he has been assigned to work this year at Fairview in Pine City and Fairview at Wyoming. So he's actually been at the hospital in Wyoming in the OB clinic working with the people there and gotten to know them all, and they're all kind of excited that Ben and his wife Becca are going to be there shortly. So we'll, we'll let you know when that call comes and how it goes. But um, Gail and I were thinking about the differences in, say, Becca's pregnancy compared to when we first had kids. You know, when we had our oldest son, Matt, and he was born, ultrasounds were a pretty new thing, and they would take this picture, and it was pretty chalky and grainy, and yeah, I think that's a person in there, but, you know, it didn't have the clarity and definition it does now. 
And at that time, most people didn't want to know the sex of the child. Well, today, that's, that's all different. I mean, uh, you know, this gender reveal deal is a really big thing. And uh, that's, that's something that people put on Facebook or Ben and Becca had asked us to be part of it and to take some pictures. And so we did that to help them with their gender reveal. And there's a whole long story there I could tell you, but, but I'm not going to tell it at this time, although I know Andy and Kelly were thinking sometime that's going to be a sermon illustration. <laughs> but the point I wanted to make about their pregnancy was just like, You have this gender reveal, and then couples take a baby moon, you know, to get away before the baby's born. And then uh, on her phone, she's got this app that goes through, you know, every stage of the child's development. So every week, she can tell what's happening with the baby and what size the baby is. And uh, they had announced they're having a baby girl. Well, anyway, I'm looking at this app, and it's kind of interesting. You know, when a When that baby in the womb is just four weeks old, it's about the size of a poppy seed. Imagine that. If you like those uh, lemon poppy seed cake or muffins or something, you know, a little poppy seed, that's what you're like at four weeks. By seven weeks, you're the size of a blueberry. (laughs) By 12 weeks, you know, a baby's grown to the size of a plum. By 15 weeks, it's the size of an apple. By 19 weeks, the size of a good-sized tomato, the kind that makes a great BLT, you know. And then by 23 weeks, it's the size of a grapefruit. And then by 39 weeks, which is where Becca is at now, it's the size of a watermelon, and you're saying, get this baby out of here. You know, it's just, you're ready. You're ready to have this child out. So we're just waiting for the call to come. But today we're going to talk about growth in another area. And I was thinking about that, how even though we know so much more about the development of a child in the womb, it's still a mystery. And it's amazing. I mean, to think of how young all those systems in our body are there and they just need to develop. How early brain waves and the heartbeat and all of those functions are going on. We truly are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the Scripture says. Well, today we're going to talk about the growth of the kingdom of God. How does that grow? And it is an amazing and wonderful thing to see. And sometimes it is hidden, and sometimes it's visible. But it grows from something so small and so insignificant, it seems, at the beginning, like a mustard seed, and yet it can grow to fill the whole earth. How does that happen? How does the kingdom grow? And how can we join with God in what he is doing in the world? Well, that's a good question to ask. Today, as we walk through this text, I want to bring out three points from the Scripture. Number one, the kingdom of God will grow despite human opposition. Not everyone is going to be excited about the kingdom of God coming to earth. There are those who don't like what God is doing in our world, but God is going to grow and build his kingdom in spite of any human opposition. We have here this story of this crippled woman who was healed on the Sabbath. The setting is a synagogue. Jesus has gone there to teach, as is his custom. And he sees this woman who is there in the crowd, who is kind of shuffling in, coming in that day, you know, and she is all bent over, and she 
can hardly look up. In fact, when someone calls her, she probably can't even look straight ahead. She is so bent over that she gives a sideways kind of glance at who might be speaking to her. And Jesus sees her, and he has compassion, and he calls her forward and says, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And he places his hand lovingly on her, and immediately she straightens up, and she praises God for this miracle. Well, this particular passage, this story, uh, the healing of a crippled woman, is called a mirror miracle. Now, that may be a term you're not familiar with, and you're wondering, what is a mirror miracle? And why is it called that? Well, it is a miracle that is similar to other miracles we have already seen in Luke's gospel. Jesus has been teaching and preaching, and he has gone, as is his custom, into the synagogue, and he has done this before. In Luke chapter 4, he was teaching in the synagogue, and he healed a man possessed by an evil spirit. In Luke chapter 5, he heals a leper, and he heals a paralytic. And in that story with the paralytic, he also says to this man, your sins are forgiven. And that stirs up a controversy when the leaders are there and they say, well, who can forgive sins except God alone? Who does this man think he is? And then you have in Luke 6, the story where he's again in a synagogue and he heals a man with a shriveled hand. So why is this story told here? Why is this similar miracle repeated once again? Well, it is because months have passed in Jesus' ministry. And the question is, has anything changed? Has anything changed with the religious leaders? I mean, they've had the opportunity now to hear Jesus teach, to see the miracles that God has been doing through him. Has anything changed in their attitude? And what we see is that the people are still amazed by Jesus. They praise God for the wonderful things that he was doing. But the religious leaders were furious. There was no change in their heart. And because of their stubborn unbelief, the point is now going to come when they will see these things no more. Judgment is going to come. And here, this synagogue ruler is indignant with Jesus. But rather than rebuke Jesus directly, do you notice what he does? He talks to the people. And he's kind of mad at them, and he says, there are six days to work. You know, come for healing then, but not on the Sabbath. When I first read that, I was thinking how interesting that is, that he makes no reference to the miracle that Jesus has done. I mean, was this like an everyday occurrence? Yeah, just come tomorrow. We'll heal you, take care of this tomorrow, you know, no problem. I don't think so. He's totally oblivious to what God is doing in this wonderful miracle that he has done through Jesus and then blames the people as though they're there on the wrong day. Don't come now to be healed. And Jesus rebuked the ruler. And he rebukes all who think like him. He says, you hypocrites, you care more about your livestock than you do people. Do you remember all of the restrictions that the rabbis imposed on the Sabbath? We talked about this in those earlier passages 
And why Jesus got in trouble with the religious leaders? Because they had added all of these rules and regulations to God's commandments. They had placed limits on how far you could walk on the Sabbath, on how much you could carry, on what you could do or not do, and what was considered work and what was not considered a work. But it is very interesting that they were very kind to animals, their animals in particular. You know, they could lead an animal out to eat or drink on the Sabbath, but to help a woman who has been disabled and held in bondage for 18 years, they wouldn't even lift a finger. And Jesus uses an argument from lesser to greater, that if you will give such care to your animals, how much more should you care for a person? And what is being stressed here is that there is never a limit to doing good. It's like what the Scripture says about the fruit of the Spirit. When God says that He wants to produce in our life things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, etc., and He tells us that against such things there is no law, I mean, that's the work of the Holy Spirit who wants to produce those Christ-like qualities in us. And what he's saying in Galatians 5 there is that there isn't a law in the land that is written to say, hey, you guys can't do good, or you can't love, or you can't help, or you can't serve, or you can't be a good person. In fact, we want people to do those good things. We want people to be good citizens, to obey the laws, and to be kind to their neighbors. But sadly, there will be legalists in the church from time to time, and there will be opposition from the outside. But the kingdom of God will continue to grow. And our part is to join with him in that work. The kingdom of God will grow in spite of all human opposition. And secondly, the kingdom of God will grow despite spiritual opposition. There's another point in this story that Luke tells us. He tells us that this woman had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. And that's an interesting observation coming from Luke. I mean, Luke was a doctor, okay? He wrote this, and of course their training wasn't the same as training that doctors have today, but he has that mindset, and he has that eye to diagnose things. And this is the first time that Luke combines these two. Normally a fever is a fever, Somebody's disabled, it's a disability. Uh, If there's a demon involved, he'll state that, and there's demonic possession, then there's going to be an exorcism or deliverance by Jesus. But you come to this passage, and both are mentioned, but in this case, it doesn't appear to be demonic possession. There's no exorcism by Jesus. There's no command of the Spirit to leave, just healing with a word and the laying on of hands. And yet somehow Satan is behind this affliction that this woman has had. What's going on there? Well, there is a connection between the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual parts of our life. And it's pretty hard to sort that all out. I mean, if we're down emotionally, that affects our mood, and sometimes that affects how we think spiritually. If we're dealing with a lot of pain physically, that can affect us. 
but also our spiritual health and well-being can change our whole outlook on our circumstances. And Satan comes in, and he tries to hit where we are weak, where we are vulnerable. And he tries to tempt us in those areas where we are prone to stumbling. And you know what? Satan doesn't fight fair, and he can even use afflictions in our life, whether it is a mental health issue or a physical disability, to beat down and discourage and defeat those who are struggling with those kind of different issues in their life. I remember Tim Warner, who was a professor of mine back at Trinity. He had been a missionary for many years in Africa. And he talked about how sometimes it can be hard to discern where the line is between what is physical and spiritual and emotional. And so we pray. We ask God for wisdom. We ask him for his healing. It's why we still go to a doctor you know, when we have physical conditions, why we go to a counselor if we're dealing with some mental health issues, because they can help us. But we do all of those things because we are a whole. And Jesus' point here to the synagogue ruler is pretty neat. You know, he was saying that the Sabbath is a great day to be healed. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to us to be a day for worship, to come together as we do to worship the living God. The Sabbath was made as a day for rest from our labor, from our toil. And the Sabbath was made as a day to celebrate God's triumph over sin and over Satan. This is to be a day of joy for the believer. Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. And what better way to celebrate than by setting this woman free from her affliction. And how much more true is that for us who live after Jesus' death and resurrection? We know what he has accomplished. Today is a great day. We remember that in communion. We celebrate that in our worship. Think about these verses in Colossians 2, 13-15. The Scripture says, When you are dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. And he took it away. He nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the power and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Does that give us reason to celebrate? It sure does. Jesus has triumphed. He has defeated Satan and all of the demonic powers. He has forgiven us all our sins. They have all been covered by his blood. We have a relationship with him that will last for eternity. And when we walk with Jesus, we walk in his victory. Praise God for what he has done. The story does remind us, though, that we are in a spiritual war and there is still a battle going on. And the devil, who is opposed to us, would like to trip us up or cause us to stumble. Sometimes he gets people to be so consumed with his presence and power that they are afraid of him or they are drawn to him. And for others, they conclude that he's not there at all. They just don't believe any of this spiritual stuff. They reject it. C.S. Lewis wrote about that in his book, The Screwtape Letters. 
He said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Satan doesn't really care. Sometimes, again, like I said, he gets people so drawn into him that they're drawn to the dark side, if you will. And other people are so caught up in the things of this world that they deny any spiritual realm at all. Screwtape, in that particular book, would say to his devil's assistant that our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Seems to be working quite fine to get people to not put much interest in spiritual things. Don't listen to his lies. But don't be afraid of him either. A healing like this tells us that we need not fear that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And thirdly, the kingdom of God will grow to fill the whole earth. And that's what we see in the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. And when I say that it will fill the whole world, it doesn't mean that everyone will become a Christian. There was a time when the church believed that in church history in the mid to late 1800s. There was a millennial fever. Uh, people in the churches were thinking that Christ could return any time and that our world is getting better and better. Missionaries are going out. Pretty soon we're going to convert the whole world and then it'll usher in the kingdom. It was a post-millennial mindset. But... What happened was that two world wars and ongoing conflicts in the previous century really changed that thinking. What we are saying when we say that the kingdom of God will grow to fill the whole earth is that Christ's kingdom is going to advance throughout the world and his gospel will be preached in every nation. People will have an opportunity to hear about Jesus. And that is exactly what Jesus himself said in Matthew 24. He said, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And that's happening today. I mean, it's exciting to see what's happening even in closed access countries where the gospel is going forth, the church is growing. People are coming to know Christ. Sometimes it is even through unusual means of visions and dreams that God brings them to someone to hear his word and to hear the gospel clearly and come to know Christ. Well, in this passage, Jesus gives two examples of how the kingdom of God grows. He tells us the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. A mustard seed is very, very small, yet when planted in a garden, becomes a tree that the birds of the air can perch in. And the kingdom of God is like yeast mixed into a dough. And all it takes is a little bit of yeast to work its way through even a large batch of dough. What Jesus says here for a large batch of dough is about half a bushel or about 30 pounds of flour. Uh, That can make a lot of loaves of bread. And just a little bit of yeast can work through and permeate that whole dough. The other thing to notice is how one is visible. The tree. You can see the progress of its growth year after year after year. 
The other is invisible. You don't see how that yeast works, and yet it is permeating everything that it comes in contact with. And from such small and insignificant beginnings can come great things. So it is with the kingdom. Slowly, steadily, sometimes visible, sometimes invisible, the work of the Holy Spirit in human hearts or behind the scenes, He is at work. And the kingdom of God grows. And it will grow because nothing can thwart God's plan or purpose. And it will grow and it will prevail because of the mighty power of God. So what is our response to be? Well, Jesus would say, trust me. Trust me when even things look difficult and there are obstacles and you don't know how it's going to happen. Trust me. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And he wants us to consider how we can join with him in what he is doing. You know, when I look back on what God has done here in our church in these last 32 years, I'm amazed. And we're just one little drop in this mighty river of God that is flowing and moving throughout the world. I mean, we're... We're just one little church in this small town. And yet God has done some pretty amazing things. I mean, think about it. It's an example of how the kingdom of God grows. How did this church start? Well, it started with an idea. Somebody put it on the heart and the mind of a person uh, who said, you know, what if we started a church in Lindstrom, a church for this Chisago Lakes area? And some other people said, hey, you know, I think that's a good idea. I'd be interested in that. And prayers were offered. And plans were made. And God led. And you called a pastor to come and join in that work. You rented facilities. And there was a place to meet. And we began to have services. And people came. And then over time, as the church grew, uh, we added staff. And then there was a building project to build a place where we could meet for worship and teaching and instruction. And the church continued to grow and more people came and disciples were being made and more staff were added and then another building project and another building project. And new churches were started in neighboring communities in Wyoming, Minnesota and Osceola, Wisconsin. And the church continued to grow. And so did our witness to the world, both in our community and the relationships were built, and then through mission trips and teams that were sent out and other places to the world, through the missionaries we supported and pastoral training that was done, and more laborers were raised up, and more was done for the sake of the kingdom until today, God has called 41 people from our church to go into full-time ministry. That's amazing in those 32 years. We have worked with two unreached people groups. We have missionaries that we support on five continents. We have three Bible translation projects that we are working with. And through pastoral training, we have touched more than a dozen different nations. How did that happen? You know, you look back on that and you go, well, that isn't what we were thinking at the beginning. Who but God can do that? Who but God? And to him belongs the glory. And when we join with him in his work, 
He gets the glory. The kingdom grows and we are blessed. And it is such a joy to partner with him in his work. And the things that are done as unto the Lord are the things that are going to last for eternity. They will carry over. Those relationships will continue. And the kingdom of God will grow until the day our Lord returns. It will overcome all human opposition. It will overcome all spiritual opposition. It will grow by the power of God. So what will your part be? And how will you join in the work that God is doing in our church and in our world? You know, he calls each of us to different areas and responsibility for all of us. There's the opportunity to pray for his kingdom to come and to pray for our church and ministries. We can give of our time. We can give of our talents, our resources, our abilities. We can serve using the gifts that we have been given to be a blessing to others. We can go. We can follow God's leading to go and make disciples of all nations. What is God asking you to do? Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to think of what you have done in these past years that our church has been in existence. God, we give you praise. It has been amazing. It's been an extraordinary work of your Spirit. And Father, I just thank you that that good work is going to continue until the day of Christ Jesus. And so, Father, would you call each of us to join in that work in the different areas of ministry? Would you show us what it is that you want us to do as we work together as brothers and sisters in Christ? And Jesus, would you continue to lead us, bless the work of our hands, bless our ministries to children, youth, and adults, bless those who have gone out as missionaries to serve you around the world. And we pray for that day when all the nations will hear the gospel and every person will have the opportunity to know you as Savior and Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Well, today we don't have a closing hymn to end our service. I'd like you to stand, though, as we hear this benediction, and then we'll be dismissed. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.